good morning. Welcome back to the Broadcast Retirement Network. I'm Jeff Snyder. This is BRN Weekly for Saturday, August 12th, 2023. And our top story today, investors are seeing red what to know about the market pullback. Joining me now to discuss this and a lot more, Monica Malpass is with NASDAQ. Monica, it's great to see you again. Thanks so much for joining us on the program this morning. Hi, Jeffrey. Great to be with you as always. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the market. And, you know, it's been a little bit choppy this le- these last few days. Investors seeing red. I want to ask you, let's start with uh, just general sense for the market. How are, you, how are you viewing the market? How are the folks at the NASDAQ viewing the market? Well, here's the thing. It's a bit of a mixed bag, and that is good news for investors. It's not all bad news, but you're right. We are seeing some red, uh, but there's a reason why the pullback will be muted and short-lived most likely, and that is because typically August and September are two months that we have poor performance or sometimes our worst performing months of the entire year. That goes back to 1950, where August typically loses about 1.1% of its value. So this is not a shock anyway. Uh, But we are seeing, as you said, some of the seasonal drop already just this week. uh, U.S. government and domestic uh, bank ratings have been downgraded, and there has been a lot of profit taking. So none of that should come as a total shock to people. The good news, if you want to look at it that way, is that the first seven months of this year have offset that in many ways. We have seen uh, record profit soaring uh, even beyond the 2019 numbers, and some individual stocks have actually regained Uh, what they had in the original phase and gone up 20% higher than their 2019 earnings. So uh, really you have to look at both sides of the equation to get a fair balanced picture. Yeah. And I agree with you. I mean, we always talk about long-term investing and that means you're going to have some dips and, you know, troughs and valleys and all that kind of stuff. Uh, By and large, to to your point, uh, the returns, broad indexes really have done well over the last seven or eight months, even dating back to post-pandemic. I mean, it really is amazing. And, and, and as you said, historically, August, September, just not great months. I don't, I don't know why that is. I guess maybe people are taking the, the, the rest of the summer off or they're just waiting and seeing until we, we hit Labor Day. I think that is part of it, that people really uh, take a breather, if you want to call it that, because they they need a break. And I don't think they're paying as much attention because they know uh, summer is traditionally vacation time for most families. Um, And by the way, just to be fair, most Wall Street analysts are expecting us to have uh, some short term weakness. We can't avoid that. The pullback has probably not run its course. But uh, by the way, the VIX index, which does project a 30 day volatility measure uh, based on S&P 500 options has soared more than 40% in the last couple of weeks. Uh, and that's a clear indicator as well that the market is feeling some pressure, as we said, already some profit taking happening. And for people invested in technology and home building specifically, they are expected to get hit uh, and take a bit of a breather. But overall, if you want to look at the big picture, if we call it that, uh, most of the rally is based on strong fundamentals. And over the long run, stock performance is based on corporate earnings. And if the bones are good, then that means long-term there will be some recovery. So as you said, some short-term hits are going to likely happen. People should just uh, be ready, but it's not going to be the scary long-term, you know, bumpy ride that we've had in the past. Uh, And because of the deceleration of inflation, that's good news. And P.S., we are in a pre-election year. There has never been a recession in a pre-election year since 19. 
42 that during World War II. So we have that on our side that the likelihood, historically speaking, is that we will not have a recession and that things will even out and it will get better. Well, we're going to see. Hopefully we chase those bears into hibernation. Monica, always <laughs> great to see you. Thanks so much for joining us. And we look forward to having you back on the program again very Thank soon. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jeffrey. Well, thanks, Monica. Great to see you. Thanks for sharing your perspective. And we come back, take a look at some of our best segments for the week. You're going to want to stay tuned right here on BRN Weekly. Imagine a new television network that will make you richer, healthier, and in control of your financial future. This network is for the policewoman in Nashville, Tennessee, the baker in Dubuque, Iowa, the teacher in Lexington, Kentucky. We want to make the idea of savings and retirement culturally relevant. But what do you see as a defining issue of the midterms? Especially for the smaller businesses. I mean, they are the lifeblood of the American economy. Featuring exclusive interviews, current affairs, and docu-series. 33 yeah. years old, you retired early. The philosophy is money only matters if it helps you live a life that you love. But you gotta start thinking about retirement as soon as you get in. The Broadcast Retirement Network will drive very high engagement with premium partnerships. So this isn't retirement and savings for your parents or grandparents. This is for all Americans. And we're gonna change the way you think about money. Welcome to the next frontier of retirement and savings. This is BRN, the Broadcast Retirement Network. Welcome back. This week we discussed how the PBGC projects a surplus for the single and multi-employer programs. Let's take a look. So Jeff, that's really a good question for a typical person who might be listening to this, somebody who doesn't live in the wild and wacky world of pensions every day. Um, so back in 1974, Congress passed it and uh, President Ford signed into law ERISA, the Employee Retirement Income Security Act. And part of ERISA was Title IV, which established the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, or PBGC, as we usually know it. Um, what Congress was concerned about was all these companies offering pensions, but what happened if they weren't well enough funded and participants didn't actually get to benefit from them? So they established the PBGC, um, governmental agency, where the agency itself is entirely funded by premium payments from plan sponsors. There are two trust funds within the PBGC. One of them ensures single employer pension plans. So those are the type that are sponsored by one employer and also multi-employer pension plans. Those are jointly trusteed pensions that are for the benefit of certain groups of union employees. Those two trust funds operate independently. 
the money from one trust fund is not shared with the other trust fund. And as a result, as you mentioned, the study that came out the other day um, focuses on the two trust funds separately. If we step back to what you said there, you know, honestly, the single employer trust fund has not always been in great shape, but it has been for the last number of years. And what's going on here? If we look back to another law that was passed, PPA, Pension Protection Act, in 2006, what that did is it escalated premiums fairly significantly in order to make sure that the PBGC single employer fund was sufficient to provide all the benefits as a couple of things were happening. One was we had just come out of a somewhat bad fiscal crisis, the uh, tech bubble starting right around the beginning of this century. So there were more companies then that had gone out of business than had uh, certainly for a while. Um, but we were also in a situation where some of the pensions that were out there were really, really presented high risks to the PBGC because they were poorly funded, whereas most pensions really did not. So what PPA did is it did a couple of things. It raised what's known as the fixed rate premium. So that's a premium that every plan sponsor pays for every person that they cover in a plan. It also raised the variable rate premium. So that's a rate that is specifically related to the risk that that plan posed to the PBGC. And not only did it raise the dollar amount, it also raised the percentage of the underfunding that plan sponsors had to pay. And it did that at twice the rate of inflation. Well, doing it at twice the rate of inflation suddenly took an underfunded program to what we now see in the most recent report that projects out 10 years for single employer plans, a really significantly overfunded trust plan. In fact, of all the scenarios that PBGC looked at in their forecast, um, it looks like they might not have found any where PBGC single employer trust fund is at risk in the next 10 years. From a premium standpoint, there are proposals that are out there. There are proposals that are circulating among Capitol Hill staffers. There are, some, there are proposals that are coming from organizations like the ERISA Industry Committee, uh, American Benefits Council, and others that are suggesting PPA did its thing. The fund is really well-funded now. I mean, we're, it's in extremely good shape. Wouldn't this be a great time to not just reduce the rate at which premiums are increasing, but maybe lower them or lower caps on them or lower the rate at which they're pay being paid. So from a plan sponsor standpoint, unfortunately, over the last 10 to 15 years at least, a lot of plan sponsors have looked at PBGC premiums, not so much as insurance, but they've looked at it as a tax because the burden the PBGC burden was so high. So what I see a lot of plan sponsors hoping for here, and frankly, as a practitioner who thinks that pensions are a good thing for, uh, for Americans, generally speaking. So as a practitioner, I would love to see proposals, not ones that will leave the PBGC insolvent or even risk it of insolvency, 
but bringing them back down from this huge surplus down to a point where the PBGC is, we'll say, nicely funded, but don't continue to use their, to use the words of plan sponsors, don't continue to tax those plan sponsors, perhaps unnecessarily. There are a lot of CFOs out there who say, you know, if I could get away from that burden, I would take my frozen plan that I'm trying to terminate and reopen it. Or I would take this situation where I already terminated a plan and consider starting up a new one. But they're not going to do it if this burden is too high. And we also discussed IT modernization and escaping legacy systems. Let's take a look. Well, um, Jeff, organizations live with a crippling amount of uh, technical debt. And uh, it, uh, they have, you know, while their competitors uh, realize digital strategies um, and sail on ahead in, into that future, uh, they're straddled with uh, technical debt that um, stops the business from um, achieving the levels of self-service uh, that they want. Uh, they're Operational processes are more painful and manual than necessary. And, uh, you know, even the smallest uh, uh, change to um, the experience that impacts the legacy platform usually results in a very costly and long estimate of the efforts to uh, remediate it. And uh, it puts the entirety of the operations at risk. So, um, you know, organizations are very motivated to escape the, um, uh, the gravitational pull of uh, legacy systems. Um, the, the trends include, as you say, artificial intelligence and uh, you know, data science, better data sciences and insights from you know, data. Uh, and unfortunately, these organizations really can't get to that because they're, they're straddled with uh, the technical debt. So uh, we ultimately uh, want to work to help them sort of uh, refinance that debt. Um, key to that is a methodology that allows them to iteratively uh, contend with uh, the reality of both you know, the old uh, architecture and the new architecture at the same time, that these will have to coexist um, because it sometimes takes you know, months, if not years, uh, to modernize a, an architecture platform. So um, as you know, Mark can speak to that, there um, some innovations that have come up uh, in terms of how um, legacy code can be analyzed and converted and uh, um, that automatic uh, translation um, is sort of key to uh, escaping the legacy platform. Jeff, I always appreciate when somebody says that, uh, you know, COBOL is a legacy language. COBOL was relatively new when I uh, joined and it was more of the uh, assembler and, uh, and those type of language, almost coding a machine code. So uh, folks today can do lots of uh, things and take advantage of uh, um, things that are not procedural anymore, right? That are more object oriented and things that can, uh, can be broken down into uh, usable chunks. And that's to me, one of the main, um, you know, uh, pro, uh, you know, uh, modernization uh, uh, objects. It, it's, it's a lot more, uh, easy or straightforward to take uh, uh, chunks of code uh, and we call that either four cornering or chunking or there's lots of other terms that, that folks use and you can uh, look at the different procedures 
extract them and actually do some transformation where you not only translate line by line, but it's more of process by process. That is the biggest thing that, that I see is differently. And it's a totally different mindset for the, uh, for the legacy uh, programmer like you and I. I mean, the ROI has to be built with uh, both the business and IT, you know, to the business, you know, I, the question is, what is the value of a customer experience that, you know, can more easily rise up to, you know, digital strategy aspirations, you know, to be on web and mobile, to, uh, to be improved and to drive greater customer satisfaction and retention. You know, what, what's the value of IT, you know, being able to turn around features and requests, you know, in an agile fashion, you know, in measured in days or hours compared to the protected responses that, you know, legacy engineering teams, uh, respond with uh, whenever they know that they have to touch that legacy code. So, um, and then ultimately, and this is quite scary for them right now, what's the value of having engineers that are still available to maintain and manage uh, the businesses for applications? Uh, I would say that's priceless because uh, when there are no engineers left to do it, it, it really will be priceless, right? Um, so, uh, you know, ultimately it, it's, it, it you have to um, look at uh, both the technology and business implications of this. And, uh, you know, I think the case is pretty strong for uh, that they've run out of time and they can no longer continue making interest payments on, on this technical debt. And that wraps up this episode of BRN Weekly. Have a topic of interest, someone you think we should talk to, drop us a line and don't forget for all the latest curated news and lifestyle wellness finance tech, so much more and all in one place. Check out today's edition of our daily newsletter, The Morning Pulse. Want to search our archives, check out our latest content, then visit our website. We're back again tomorrow for another edition of BRN Sunday. I'll be joined by members of the Media Academia of Financial Services and Government as we break down all the news and events for the week. You're not going to want to miss it. Until then, I'm Jeff Snyder. Stay safe, keep on saving, and don't forget, roll with the changes. Now is your opportunity to co-create content around any topic on the first lifestyle and wellness network. Reach a global audience through our platform and co-own exclusive branded content. All of our programs are available on demand and also as audio only podcasts so you can take us on the go. Broadcast Retirement Network, available anytime, anywhere, and on any device.